My name is Isabel Trick, and I'm an Associate Director in the Global Macro Team at Global Council. Welcome to our podcast series, The Global Months Ahead. Towards the beginning of each month, I get together with colleagues from across Global Council to delve deeper into three of the most interesting events and developments taking place in the months ahead. You can expect a focus on issues that have a broader geopolitical or economic importance, and we will always make sure that you know more than your friends and your colleagues when these topics will inevitably hit the news. This month, I've got three very interesting topics for us. This September, we're going to cover the G20 Leaders Summit in India, Ursula von der Leyen's State of the Union speech, and a new summit hosted by the International Energy Agency on critical raw materials. First off, the G20 Summit. As the G20 president for the year, India has emerged as the driving force behind a wide range of issues that need immediate attention from global leaders who are going to converge in New Delhi to attend the G20 Heads of State and Government Summit on the 9th and 10th of September. Each year, the summit is the culmination of all the different G20 processes and meetings that are going on throughout the year among ministers and senior officials and civil society participants. And usually at the end of each summit, we do get a joint declaration that allows us a glimpse at the priorities of the G20 for the year ahead. To discuss this, I had Ed King with me. He's a senior associate in the Global Macro team. Hi, Ed. Hi, as well. Before we jump into the summit, I want to briefly start with G20 presidency. How does hosting the G20 fit in with what we've seen from India about their wider foreign policy stance? And how do we think India is looking to benefit from being the president of the G20 this year? Yeah, so India's role as a G20 president provides an opportunity to assess whether its long-standing non-alignment strategy or multi-aligned foreign policy stance can actually be successful at the forefront of the global stage. On one hand, New Delhi has been aligning more closely with the West to bolster its security through partnerships like the Quad and new defence agreements with the US. But on the other hand, India is one of the most important voices in the BRICS bloc, which is attempting to reduce economic dependence on the West, and more specifically, the US dollar. The admission of six new members to the BRICS group agreed just last week only emphasises this desire to hedge against the West. At the G20 summit, India will be looking to build a global consensus on a host of issues from climate change to the global economy. By inviting the African Union to the G20 summit, India is already championing inclusivity and strengthening the voice of the global South. But there are two key tension points for India's stance, Russia and China, and these could hinder prospects for joint agreement on some of the key issues at the G20 summit. Right, so we have a G20 president that's trying to do quite a complicated balancing act there, in line with their multi-alignment, non-aligned strategy, but equally kind of looking particularly intense in the last few weeks with the big attention we've seen on BRICS while simultaneously trying to maintain closer ties to the West, I think that could definitely translate into some of these tension points that you've just mentioned there. And maybe to just stay there on that topic for a second, because obviously Russia's invasion of Ukraine has really dominated the geopolitical debate over the last 18 months and has been quite a contentious topic at the last G20 summit as well. Um, Russia's president Putin has already confirmed that he's not going to attend the summit but how do we imagine the G20 will position itself on the war in Ukraine? 
are we imagining that they're going to come up with a unified stance? Yeah, it's perhaps not surprising that Russia and China has proved the biggest sticking points in G20 discussions this year. Just last month, the G20 finance ministers and central bank governors failed to agree a joint statement due to Russian and Chinese objections to the proposed language on Ukraine. And despite India's best intentions and Putin's absence, differences with Western countries will inevitably spill over into the Leaders' Summit this month. US President Joe Biden is expected to restate that there will be no scaling back of the West's support for Ukraine, but the Global South's frustration is only expected to increase given that long-promised resources are being diverted to Ukraine's reconstruction rather than to lower- and middle-income countries where food and energy costs remain dangerously high. And India's reliance on Russian defence and energy imports means that agreement on Moscow is pretty unlikely. Given these tensions between the West and the rest, if you will, there are increasing questions about the utility of the G20 format. But still, it's important to remember that the geopolitical outcome of last year's G20 summit in Indonesia was actually surprisingly positive, with a joint statement emphasising the peaceful resolution of conflicts and that today's era must not be of war. And although that obviously hasn't culminated in any substantial intervention, similar language is likely to reappear at the end of this year's summit. That definitely sounds like an interesting challenge for Prime Minister Modi, because if I remember correctly, last year in Indonesia, President Joko Widodo had to work very hard and very diplomatically to get any of that language agreed. So let's see how successful Modi will be this year. I'd like to dig a little bit deeper on something you just said, because you touched on some of the frustrations that countries in the global south have been feeling and how some of them are related to kind of like a lack of support and higher costs. And especially we still have this backdrop of slow global growth and an ongoing debt crisis. Do you think we can expect any meaningful progress on topics like debt or inflation that we should be paying attention to? In short, it's a pretty bleak picture. Let's take debt first. More than half of all low-income countries are either in or near to debt distress, double the number in 2015. And the IMF has warned that medium-term growth prospects remain weak and that vulnerable countries are falling further behind. The recent agreement on Zambia's $6.3 billion debt restructuring deal provided some cause for optimism ahead of this G20 summit. But expectations that its principles could be used as a blueprint for other negotiations under the G20 Common Framework on Debt are likely to be disappointed. Instead, Debt discussions at pre-summit meetings have only reopened old disagreements, with China's insistence that multilateral development banks should consider debt haircuts a key point of contention. After Beijing conceded on the issue in Zambia's debt deal, some had hoped to template this for future negotiations. But an agreement seems unlikely at the G20 summit, and a failure to adopt common principles will only mean further delays four countries in debt distress. On inflation, it remains a major concern for G20 central bankers. Despite falling, headline inflation remains well above central bank targets all over the globe, and core inflation is proving persistent. 
As such, the G20 is expected to restate a commitment to achieving price stability through further interest rate rises where necessary. They will also pledge to target fiscal measures to protect the most vulnerable while advocating for supply-side policies to help increase labour supply and enhance productivity, which should hopefully mitigate against fears of a deep recession. Right, so on inflation, that doesn't sound like anything particularly groundbreaking. That sounds like fairly standard G20 language there, always a big focus on coordination. Doesn't necessarily sound like it might speak to a lot of countries that are especially feeling vulnerable and exposed to the strong dollar as well, especially with the debate about the dollar that we've seen coming out of BRICS. Could have been interesting to see if anything on that front gets mentioned. But also the picture you're painting on debt for us here really does mean that we should properly keep our expectations quite low. What we've seen in the pre-meetings, as you said, on Zambia has really not set the hopes very high. Right, so that's an interesting outlook on both inflation and debt. But are there any other topics that we should be keeping our eyes open for? Anything else we should be having on our radar as we head into this meeting? Yeah, there's a couple of things that certainly we should be keeping an eye on. First one is on climate. It'll be interesting to see whether the G20 leaders can agree to timelines for climate mitigation measures and reach consensus on action to support the energy transition ahead of COP28 in November. So far, ministerial level meetings have failed to do this, which means that negotiations at COP could be pretty tricky. Keep your eyes peeled on climate. Secondly, there may be some more positive outcomes actually taking place on the sidelines of the G20 summit, particularly regarding India's relations with the US and the UK. Over the last few months in particular, we've seen the US positioning itself increasingly closely to India, and Biden will meet Modi on the sidelines of the summit to continue to nurture its deepening economic and defence relationships after Modi's successful trip to Washington DC in June. But Modi will also meet with the UK Prime Minister Rishi Sunak on the margins of the summit. And the prospect of a UK-India trade deal is seen as a significant goal by both sides. Although there appears little chance of a full trade deal being ready, the leaders may sign an agreement in principle. In other words, a declaration of political intent to get the deal done soon. So, yeah, although the summit itself seems unlikely to produce any concrete achievements, unlike last year's $1.5 billion pandemic fund, there might be some developments in the margins that are worth keeping an eye on. Fascinating. I guess, like you point out with these summits, it's always just as much what happens in the big plenary halls, in the big press conferences, as it is what happens behind the scenes and in the corridors and in the private meetings and the bilaterals. A UK-India trade deal definitely would be a big win for both sides. We've both been pushing for this. So let's see if we can see one of these agreements in principle. We'll keep our eyes open. Thanks very much, Ed. Thanks very much for having me. On the 13th of September, Ursula von der Leyen, the president of the European Commission, will give her annual State of the Union address. This speech has always been an opportunity for the president to outline some of the big initiatives for the European Union for the year to come. They provide a useful indication of where the Commission is really looking to spend most of its energy. To discuss this, I am joined by Tom White from our Brussels office. Thomas, Global Council's Europe Director and leads all of our work on EU institutions and member state governments. Welcome, Tom. Hello, Isabel. 
Very nice to be here again. Well, thanks very much, Tom, for being with us. To kick us off, tell us a bit more about what the State of the Union Address is and why it has become such an important fixture in the political calendar. Well, as the name implies, it's a event modelled loosely on the US equivalent where the president speaks to Congress. In this case, the president speaks to the European Parliament in its plenary session down in Strasbourg. It differs in some ways from the American version in that it is targeted much more at what we call the Brussels bubble, the local policymakers and decision makers within the parliament, but also in the member states, and does not have a huge amount of cut through to the wider public, but is nonetheless very important for us and our clients as we try to anticipate where will political capital be invested over the next 12 months. Often there are some new initiatives launched at the same time, and we can come on to possible initiatives that will happen this time around. And it also provides the function that the US equivalent does of focusing everyone's mind on a particular deadline, both within the services for preparing the speech, crafting where the president should really land on some of the key tonal questions that she faces on issues like what language to use about China, the United States, also gives a chance to focus the political family that she's a part of in the parliament and in the council to marshal some support for her. So in her case, that is the European People's Party, the centre-right grouping. Um, and it also gives a sense of maybe what is not going to be prioritised over the coming months. So we always look at this quite carefully for what is not listed as a priority, as a sense of what might ultimately be taken back. And this time around, that's particularly important because the Commission has not done as much in its term as it normally would due to the pressures of the pandemic and various other things that were not expected when von der Leyen first announced her policy programme. Very interesting. So clearly built or modelled on the US example, but with some important differences. And it's both important to watch what is prioritised as well as what is not prioritised. But what is maybe particularly interesting is that this is also a especially important State of the Union address for Ursula von der Leyen, because we have the European elections coming up in 2024. Tell us a bit more about how that context puts maybe a particular bit of pressure or a particular bit of interest on this Union address. You're right, it is more interesting than usual. And you'll remember we were discussing between ourselves back in 2019 after the last elections, how the fairly inconclusive result in the parliament and the very divided nature of the council representing the member states actually led to von der Leyen getting the top job. She'd not been expected to be appointed. She was not really discussed by anyone up until that marathon summit in 2019. And she's now coming to the end of her term. And so essentially, this can be a pitch for her to be reappointed. I think that will be very closely watched by observers such as ourselves as we look at her body language, the tone. Ultimately, if she is going for another term as president, she will do the classic model of any politician seeking re-election or reappointment and talk about what has been achieved and what is left to do. Now, if she was to focus a bit more on the former category, we might think she's having a few doubts. There's been speculation that she could be appointed to the top role in NATO. But in general, there's a view across Brussels that if she wants the commission presidency for another term, it's there for her to take it. But that view is not shared across all of the member states. 
And so if she does decide to use this as part of her bid for another term, we would expect her to try to appeal to some of those constituencies that are reserving judgment on on her reappointment. And that actually includes her originally strongest advocate in Paris, President Macron. And so the extent to which she chooses to adopt some of his language in her speech will be a sign of her seeking support from him. The extent to which she maybe avoids some of the contentious issues around EU enlargement, where we've got applications for membership from countries in obviously Ukraine, but others in the region, and the extent to which she talks about questions such as the rule of law, which are more divisive in Eastern Europe, given that she ultimately would need a unanimous support for her to get that second term. And so, as you say, it's, it's more interesting this time around, partly for the reason I mentioned before about not having that much time left to get things done. So when she talks about priorities, we need to take it more seriously than normal. If she chooses to put pressure on the Spanish presidency to make progress on files like electricity market reform or some of the environmental legislation that has been you know, very, very central to her own agenda, that that's where we'll start to get a sense of what she's also trying to outline as a platform for a second term. That's very interesting. So we're not just looking at her taking stock of the union, as the name might imply, but we're also going to watch whether she might be tempted to use this opportunity as an election pitch, as an election speech. Um, watching her language is going to be interesting to see which constituencies she is appealing to. But equally, that might mean we have to take some of the announcement with more of a grain of salt if there might be an overly strong focus on some of the successful achievements her commission has been able to deliver. But we already touched on this being a key opportunity for talking about initiatives and priorities. So what do you expect to be in the speech? What should we be looking out for on the day in terms of key initiatives? Well, so for me, I'm looking at the speech as a barometer on two quite important issues. I mean, it will be interesting just to see how she talks about how the role has changed from the one that she originally took on, uh, the way in which uh, some of her team has been changing over the last month or two, and also how her stakeholders in member states have changed and, and what that's about. But aside from all of that politics, I think the questions, particularly for, for businesses, as they think about where the EU policy agenda is going, there will be a question about the language she chooses to use about China, whether she uses the word de-risking, which has become more and more controversial, even as it has proved to be a point of agreement between von der Leyen and President Biden in the US, which is actually one of the achievements I think she'll want to talk about, that when she took office, Donald Trump was in the White House and really the question was all about damage control on the transatlantic relationship. And she has really personally invested a lot in making that successful. But on, on this question of China, how far does she talk about whether China is a rival, a competitor or a partner in the triage that she herself developed a couple of years ago? Or does she just stay silent on this and avoid provoking any reactions? So that's one thing that will be very interesting particularly for those companies that feel under pressure to review their exposure, review the resilience of their supply chains. The second point I'll be looking out for is how much she talks about business competitiveness. It's been striking from our office opposite DG Grow that it's been quite an active place over the summer. They're working up new initiatives on SME support. They're trying to do another push on supporting technologies such as artificial intelligence moving perhaps a little bit beyond the 
the very regulatory approach that's been taken up to now, does she choose to test some of this more pro-business messaging in the speech? And does that indicate what competitiveness might be meaning in the next policy cycle? As you and I have discussed many times, we would not see any sort of relaunch of the Lisbon agenda, the kind of you know, very uh, looking at deregulation, boosting the single market in a more ambitious way. We'll see part of that, but we'll probably also see a bit about where does the EU want to look again at some of its approaches to questions of subsidy, to questions around tax cooperation, and where might they take a more business-friendly approach. So those are the two things that we'll be watching closely. But of course, there will also be some new announcements of new policy initiatives. Some are speculating there could be something around the energy grid and investment there. Those are the main issues that we'll be watching. So some hot topics to um, keep our ears open for. China, the transatlantic relationship, and how to put some meat on the bones of the competitiveness agenda. I wanted to quickly circle back to something you said at the very beginning. You said, this is primarily targeted at the Brussels bubble. So how is this going to impact um, some of the businesses who might be listening to, to us talk about this today? Well, so the audience that she will have is initially, well, in fact, those who respond to her after her speech will be the, the group leaders. And we'll get a sense of how much do they take on board where she's said to the parliament, they need to prioritize certain issues. They need to um, finalize their positions, finalize the trilogues with the council. Where do they respond? I think there'll also be a, a sense from the Spanish presidency about what does she see as important for them to, to deliver. And by implication, if things are not done, you know, who is, who is to blame for things not getting done? From a business perspective, though, I think the key would be whether we see some of the initiatives maybe fall further down the priority list. So, for example, we've not seen much progress on some of the environmental legislation under the Fit for 55 package. You know, we're still in the middle of quite complex position development on areas like methane emissions. You know, could that seem to be something that gets pushed into the long grass? But really, there will also be a sense of where are there perhaps some hints at new regulation that could be coming out in the next political cycle if she's chosen to go down that route of making more of a longer term pitch. Brilliant. Of course, once the speech has actually happened, we'll keep you updated on what has been said, what hasn't been said, what to listen out for. But we'll specifically point out anything on the environmental agenda and any hints at new regulation. Thanks very much, Tom. Pleasure speaking to you as always. Thank you. Critical raw materials is one of those terms that has gone from niche interest to firm fixture in our political news cycle over the past few years, particularly as global net zero ambitions have increased. And with them demand for many technologies such as electric vehicles and solar panels that rely on some very specific inputs. And some of those inputs are not only critical to different technologies like the name implies, but they're also really heavily concentrated in a small number of countries that control their production and their processing. To talk to me about this, I have Julia Pasquale with me. Julia is an associate in our trade team who's been following this issue closely. Hi, Julia. Hi, Isabel. So, Julia, the International Energy Agency is going to host a critical raw materials summit in Paris on the 28th of September. Tell me a little bit more about that. What is the purpose of the summit and how did it come about? Sure. So this is the first ever international summit on critical minerals to be organized by the International Energy Agency. 
and it responds to the growing salience of critical minerals in the international arena as a result of an increasing global push towards decarbonization and technological innovation, which indeed are to policy objectives that heavily rely on, on resources such as lithium, nickel, cobalt, and so on. And so there are two concrete reasons why the IEA specifically is setting this up now. So first, its member governments, which include countries in the European Union, as well as the US, Australia, Canada, the UK, and, and a few others, gave a ministerial mandate to the agency last year to deepen its work on critical minerals. And secondly, at the G7 summit in April this year, climate, energy, and environment ministers explicitly asked the IEA to provide policy support in this area in the form of analysis of the medium and long-term supply demand projections for critical minerals. Attendance is expected to be quite high level. Confirmed participants include ministers from countries in the IEA family and beyond, including both large mineral producers and consumers. So for example, there will be ministers from countries like Chile and Indonesia, but also senior representatives from EU member states and institutions. Importantly, business leaders from companies along the critical minerals value chain, investors, head of international organizations, and civil society representatives are also expected to be there, which sets the scene for an interesting discussion. So we're going to have both a mixture of mineral producers and consumers present. That sounds like a good mixture to have to talk about these topics. And do we already have a sense of what they are going to be talking about? What are they going to discuss? Do we expect this to be a summit that's going to conclude with major announcements? So this is, this is a really great question. While the uh, detailed agenda has not yet been published, we know that the general purpose of the summit will be to discuss measures to promote the secure, sustainable and responsible supply of raw materials. Now, this is very general, which really suggests that there won't be any major commitments and concrete announcements being made. And indeed, the IEA's mandate is rather to provide energy policy advice through research, data and analysis, and not really to come up with policy solutions on behalf of its government. We could even say that the agency has a purely advisory role, which means that the summit is of a rather symbolic nature. Another consideration to be made is also that while the agency represents major Western democracies and aligned countries with broadly shared objectives, its membership is quite broad, which makes it difficult to reach agreement on, on substantial issues. And so agreement beyond cooperation on, for example, information sharing, research and monitoring is, is hard. But what we instead expect from the summit is threefold. To begin with, it will be an occasion to discuss the IEA Critical Minerals Market Review, which was published in mid-July and which responds directly to the G7 request for support early this year to help inform decision-making. The IEA has communicated that this report focuses on the current state of play and it essentially informs the first part of the response to the G7 request, which will be complemented by a forthcoming piece of analysis, which will provide full demand and supply projections for key materials, as well as a number of, of deep dives on key issues. So we expect that the current and forthcoming report will be the basis for discussion. The second interesting thing to watch out for is that moving on from this specific piece of analysis, it is likely that participants will stock take the broader G7 five-point plan on critical mineral security, as well as the progress made by the IEA within the Working Party on Critical Minerals, which was set up as a result of the 2022 Ministerial Communique, which mandated, as I, as I mentioned, more efforts in this area. 
And finally, the summit will really be an opportunity for policymakers across member countries to engage in conversations not only among themselves, which is something that they already do in other circumstances, for example, through the US-led Mineral Security Partnership, but also via bilateral agreements and MOUs. But more importantly, it will be an opportunity for policymakers to engage with the wider array of stakeholders involved in the critical minerals value chain, from upstream and downstream businesses to investors and international organizations. Very interesting. So both a discussion of the IEA analysis, some interesting uh, supply and demand projections going through the G7 five-point plan. And what I find particularly interesting is this topic of critical mineral partnerships, which really seem to have proliferated over the last few years. There seems to be a new one signed every other month. But if we're not really expecting big announcements from this summit, why do you think the summit matters? Why should this be on businesses' radars? Yeah, I know this is a really good question because businesses might wonder, you know, if there are no breakthrough announcements, why should I care? And my answer to that question is you should because the summit will be meaningful in two main ways. So on one hand, it will help businesses that are involved in this debate to test some of the existing assumptions about different countries' approaches to critical minerals in terms of their vulnerabilities, priorities, as well as their strategies going forward. In other words, it will give an indication of where we are in parallel multilateral initiatives, such as, as I mentioned, the Mineral Security Partnership, but also the recently announced EU Critical Minerals Club, as well as bilateral agreements and and MOUs. And we've really seen a flurry of of partnerships here between sourcing countries and producers of, of clean technologies, which have not yet translated into concrete actions. And so the summit could really help to provide a clearer sense of direction and crystallize which initiatives are likely to bring concrete benefits for industry in the future. And on the other hand, the second reason why I think businesses should really pay attention to this event is understanding what is being discussed beyond the headlines and also on the sidelines of the summit will be key to preempt any potential critical mineral supply chain shifts that may pose a risk to both upstream and downstream businesses or any upcoming policy that could indeed create new market opportunities for businesses. We'll definitely keep an eye on those, both the directions of those MOUs and those new initiatives, especially trying to identify which ones are going to be the ones that will most likely deliver concrete results, as well as importantly, as you say, going beyond the headlines. Lastly, I'd like to take the opportunity to zoom out slightly from the summit and touch on the broader critical raw material debate. What do you think are some of the key policy headwinds and tailwinds that we should be looking out for going forward? As I mentioned at the beginning of our discussion, salience of critical minerals is growing and will continue to grow in the coming years. And we really can think about the key trends in this debate along three guiding lines. The first is industrial policy. Industrial policy is aimed at boosting critical minerals domestic production from extraction and manufacturing to recycling will increasingly become a key aspect of countries' policy mix as they seek to secure critical raw materials for the green and digital transition. And so while the design of such policies will be country-specific, it is likely that access to industrial subsidies will be conditional, for example, on de facto national restrictions, standards, and national security requirements to ensure that the benefits of these policies are captured by domestic players and strategic partners. And so businesses along the critical mineral supply chain will need to account for the evolving industrial policy ecosystem when assessing new investment opportunities and as well as new business strategies. 
The second angle to look at this debate is trade policy, which is in a way the other side of the coin of industrial policy. Due to the critical raw materials geographical concentration, reliance on imports and cross-border supply chains will inevitably remain complementary to industrial policy tools. However, a strategic restructuring of CRM supply chains is likely to materialize as part of the response to shifting alliances, as well as exacerbating geopolitical tensions that risk undermining access to these resources. So in the years ahead, what we can expect is that policymakers in different jurisdictions will face the challenge of needing to balance between reliance on third country supplies and increase autonomy needs. And the way in which they will do that will inevitably affect businesses along the CRM value chain. And so in practice, upstream and downstream companies operating in this space may need to adapt the commercial strategies to emerging and policy-driven supply chain reconfiguration. So the third angle to this debate is sustainability, which really comes down to increased regulatory and consumer demand for corporate sustainability disclosure as well as more transparency in supply chain. And here, essentially, the ambition of supply chain sustainability and resilience risk remaining incompatible unless there is a broader shift in community attitudes to heavy processes such as mining and refining. So in other words, you have two objectives, the objective of net zero and decarbonization, which relies on the need of securing critical raw materials. And on the other hand, you have the broader sustainability and labor concerns and labor standards that do not always go hand in hand with the first objective. And so how this will look like in practice will really impact businesses, but also the ability of of different jurisdictions to, to secure supplies of critical minerals in the future. An absolutely fascinating topic that clearly spans three very interesting policy areas, industrial policy, trade and supply chain policy, as well as sustainability. Really looking forward to the summit and what comes out of it. Thanks very much, Julia. Great to have you on the podcast. Thanks, Isabel. On this note, we are at the end of this episode of the Global Month Ahead podcast. And we're clearly looking at a very interesting month of September. We are going to see whether the leaders of the G20 will manage to agree a meaningful joint declaration and what we're going to see on the sidelines, for instance, on UK and India trade. We're going to have a particularly interesting State of the Union address by Ursula von der Leyen, where we're not only going to learn about the Commission's priorities, but also her potential aspirations for a second term. And we're going to have the first ever Critical Raw Materials Summit hosted by the International Energy Agency, which might inject some new fuel into that debate. As always, if you, your business or your investment are exposed to any of what we've discussed today, please don't hesitate to get in touch. You can find the contact details of our presenters and of our sectoral teams on the GC website at www.global-council.com or via the link in the podcast notes. Thank you to Ed, Tom and Julia, and thanks to you for listening.